0: Once you hit Wednesday, it was perfectly acceptable to crack open the wine and then pretty much keep drinking um, until the end of the week.
1: I think many lawyers have a drinking problem. Uh, there's certainly a culture that does go across the legal profession.
2: It's such a condoned way of socialising, isn't it? I mean, it's an Australian thing, um, and and that's filtered through into the profession.
3: And I woke up the next morning with my keys jammed in someone else's door, a few terraces down, and uh, I was lying on, you know, the front, their front doorstep. That should be a choice, not an expectation that we drink. I just want people to enjoy themselves but also be responsible for themselves and know the role that alcohol plays in their life.
0: Everyone has a story when it comes to alcohol. Drinking booze and getting drunk is so deeply ingrained in Australian culture. and Lawyers, of course, tend to do it exceptionally well. (laughs) Clients are won and lost over long boozy lunches, Cases are celebrated or commiserated with a stiff drink. And stress levels are kept in check with truckloads of Sav Blanc on a Wednesday, Thursday and Friday afternoon. It's all a bit of fun, right? But what about when it's not fun anymore? What happens when the drinking makes you feel trapped and sick and anxious and overwhelmed? And how can we, as lawyers, change the way we interact with alcohol?
4: Hello and welcome to episode one of Off the Record. This is a podcast by the journalists at the Law Society of New South Wales, LSJ Magazine. I'm Kate Allman, a features writer and online editor at LSJ. And I'm Claire Chaffee, editor of LSJ. And we're here kicking off this series in an attempt to prize open the stiff upper lips of the legal profession and get lawyers talking about taboo topics that maybe everyone's a little bit scared to broach. We thought we'd start off with a pretty familiar topic, alcohol. Did you know that the English language has more than 3,000 words for being drunk? And while there are all these different words to describe getting drunk, it seems like we find it very difficult to talk about using alcohol in a problematic way, or if being drunk could actually be a damaging thing. And for lawyers, this actually seems to be a pretty widespread problem. In my research for a feature article on this topic in LSJ, I found numerous data sources showed lawyers are more likely than others to abuse alcohol.
0: Claire, is that what you found? Yeah, that's exactly right. And so I went away and did a little bit of research. And while I think it's anecdotally known that lawyers perhaps, you know, may have a drinking problem, um, there are actually studies that show that that's true. So one American study showed that lawyers are almost twice as likely to abuse substances as the general population. Wow. And a recent study by the University of New South Wales found that as many as one in three lawyers are problem drinkers.
4: One in three? Yep. So that's every third workstation in your hot desking office. Exactly.
0: (laughs) In 2016, the American Bar Association did a huge survey of almost 13,000 practising lawyers and judges. Okay, so 13,000. This was big. It's big. And it found that 36% of participants could be classified as problem drinkers. Just to put that in perspective, according to the World Health Organisation, just 10% of the overall Australian population are problem drinkers.
4: Wow. Yeah. 10% of the overall population are are problem drinkers, but 36%, so nearly four times as many, in the lawyer's population. Exactly. Wow. That's crazy. I mean, well, I never got admitted as a lawyer, but I studied law at law school. And I have to admit, based on my experiences there, these statistics don't really surprise me because of how ingrained alcohol was in our network. I mean, the law school parties were infamous. (laughs) But even just at networking events, the top-tier firms would throw tens of thousands of dollars behind a massive bar tab and it was just
0: accepted that everyone would get absolutely trolled. Well, we, we had to um, pay for our own beer at UNE in Armidale. But no. was, <laughs> we were aware it was only $2 anyway. <laughs> this is true. But, you know, it was still very much the drinking culture. Mm. And the thing is, it doesn't change when you get to a law firm. So I, th- I think you bring in that drinking culture into the law firm and everyone does it. And the only difference is that you're probably a bit more stressed and you have a bit more money to spend on booze. Mm. So you do. So you go out on, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, and it's perfectly acceptable to be eating hot chips and drinking Red Bull at your desk on a, on a Monday morning, um, <laughs> recovering from the, the weekend before. And you never would have done that yourself? No, of course not. No. No, no, no. No, absolutely Everyone not. Else, not. Everyone else? Everyone else, Not Chaffee. Yeah.
4: So I know we have these statistics, and Chaffee has provided some anecdotal evidence about lawyers eating hot chips in the office <laughs> at 9am. But I wanted to know if there is a real problem here among practicing lawyers and if it's more widespread. So we gathered a bunch of practicing lawyers in a room and asked them for their thoughts on alcohol use and abuse in law. Here's what they had to say. Take a listen. So we're sitting here today with Andrew Teat. We've got Victoria Graves, a manager at New South Wales Young Lawyers and Lisa. So, Andrew, do you think that lawyers have a drinking problem?
1: I think many lawyers have a drinking problem. Uh, There's certainly a culture that does go across the legal profession in many areas and in many sectors of drinking and drinking more than people should. So that's certainly something I've seen a fair bit over my career.
4: Victoria, as manager of New South Wales Young Lawyers, you have a huge network and contact with so many young lawyers from many walks of life. What do you think about this issue? Is it a problem? I think that
5: Australia itself has a problem with drinking. You know, whether we're celebrating or commiserating, we're all drinking. Um, And unfortunately, it is something that um, tends to lend itself to stressful situations. And obviously when you're doing long hours... That's going to definitely come into it.
4: Lisa, you're a criminal lawyer. What's your experience of lawyers and particularly criminal lawyers using
2: alcohol? Um, in the midst of some really horrible, horrible matters, um, you know, I think you could easily, easily consume a bottle of wine in an evening. I think that's. Yeah. And, and amongst. Regular, regularly. Regularly, yeah. And I think speaking amongst knowing my, my colleagues and friends that would that would be easy to do. Mm. Um I mean everyone's so high functioning, that's the problem as well. Some of those sorts of issues go unnoticed in the profession. As long as you're turning up to work and getting things done. Um it's very easy to to hide um what I would call that sort of self medication. Um and as, and especially if you're doing it socially, well, then it's, it's, it's not something that's private either. It's something that's effectively condoned and, and it normalises it, doesn't it? When everybody else is in the same position using the same um, tools, it becomes just normal.
1: The real extra uh, trouble that criminal lawyers have is we have traumatic experiences. We have clients going through the worst time in their life. We have clients who are facing incredibly severe penalties. Uh, we see people... Uh, going through incredible periods of trauma. And for many people, I think they find alcohol is the only way to really relax and unwind and deal with all that trauma and stress that criminal lawyers go through. So perhaps it's not surprising uh, that criminal lawyers are particularly susceptible, I think, uh, to alcohol abuse.
0: Victoria, you, you talk about how alcohol was creeping into your life and affecting you to the point where you wanted to stop drinking. How exactly was it affecting you? What What were the the symptoms, I suppose, or, or the effects that were that it was having on you?
5: Instead of the evening run that I used to enjoy or going to body balance, which I really loved, it became, oh, it's too late to go to body balance. I've missed that glass. I can't go for a run now because it's too late. Um, these guys are going for a drink. I'll go for a drink. And then before you know it, your mind starts to click, I want to go for a drink instead of going, I want to go to the gym or I'm ready to finish
0: work. But when so many people are drinking, but they're still very successful and they're high functioning, why is it a problem? And is it a problem? You know, at what point do you say this is not working or, or this is not right?
1: It's yeah. always difficult to know when you're interacting with other people. And the real reason for that is alcohol abuse is generally pretty easy to hide. Uh, people often have the impression that someone abusing alcohol is perpetually off their face or incomprehensible or impossible to talk to. But in fact, there are many stories that you hear about. Um solicitors and barristers who really are very high functioning alcoholics who are able to function at work while intoxicated, even appear on their feet in front of magistrates and judges. And no one's any the wiser about the fact that they've had three, four, five drinks over lunch.
5: There are so many successful people that do drink. And what I was faced with when I was saying I don't want to drink is that people would say, why aren't you drinking? I've been accused of being the fun police. And I've said to these people, it's I'm not telling you not to drink. I'm saying if you feel like there is a problem, we can help you.
2: But at the end of the day, you've still got to process the stress you're under and you've got to process what you've seen or read about. Um, and often, unfortunately, uh, a large part of that is just going out with other people who can understand that. And usually that involves that involves drinking. It's part of a social sort of lubrication. But I noticed it becoming an issue the time when I was subjected to the most amount of, or the most difficult cases, the most sort of, you know, relentless sexual assault predators and things like that.
4: The conversation you have just heard offers some raw and revealing insights into a widespread problem within the legal profession. As Claire mentioned at the start, Studies have shown more than one in three lawyers are problem drinkers, and the conversation had by Andrew Teat, Victoria Graves and Lisa would seem to confirm this anecdotally. Interestingly, despite the stats and the anecdotal evidence, it was really difficult to find a broader sample of lawyer voices to contribute to this podcast and talk openly about alcohol abuse. When I put a call out on social media regarding the potential drinking problem that the legal profession is harbouring, Plenty of anonymous lawyers responded, confirming there could indeed be a problem. But only these three that you just heard were willing to give their names. I found this interesting because it seems to reveal that alcohol is still a very taboo topic for lawyers. It's taboo to admit you might have a drinking problem. And it is not yet as acceptable to admit to addiction or alcohol issues in the same way that mental health advocates have outed their own battles with depression, for example. Now, former Channel 7 newsreader, Hello Sunday Morning Ambassador and recovering alcoholic Talitha Cummins describes herself as the face of the modern alcoholic. Professional, educated, high-functioning, yet hiding a secret battle with booze, She revealed her addiction to the public on Australian Story in 2016 and was introduced by her friend and colleague, Chris Barth. Have a listen.
3: Talitha's a great girl. On air, she was always calm and professional, but it was a facade. She was battling an addiction she'd had since she was a teenager and I had no idea. This is her story.
4: I had a chat to Talitha about her journey and how she began to realise that perhaps she had a problem and she might have even an addiction to alcohol. Talitha, you describe yourself as the face of the modern alcoholic. What do you think that looks like?
3: I described myself that way because I think there was a, well, there was, there is a stereotype surrounding alcoholism that an alcoholic is a man sitting on a park bench, drinking out of a brown paper bag, homeless typically. And, um, you know, I was quite the opposite to that, professional, educated. I had a, you know, a successful career and I was struggling with alcohol. And because of That stereotype, I didn't identify myself as an alcoholic. You know, I was a white-collar worker, I was a journalist, yet I was really struggling on the inside. I think that's a part
4: of your story that really resonates with lawyers and professional people generally. I mean, as TV viewers, we saw this beautiful, successful, high-functioning professional woman on our TV screens I would watch Sunrise every morning with my
3: breakfast and think, this woman has it all. How did you manage to keep up the facade? Yeah, I guess it looked like that from the outside, you know, and I I used to think also, you know, I lived in Paddington in a terrace with two girlfriends. I'd go overseas all the time. I had this great job, yet I was desperately unhappy underneath it all. I think because of the nature of my job, I was a shy and and pretty introverted young girl when I went into journalism. It was quite a strange career for me to choose. And so I struggled from the outset, I guess, with being a shy person in a career which required you to be otherwise, along with the high stress, the long hours, the the constant deadlines, you know, all of that sort of high pressure that would mount. And by the end of the day, the outlet for me became you know, a couple of bottles of wine, essentially. And that pattern continued until I needed more and more wine to help me relax at the end of the day, until I was going home and drinking multiple bottles. And, you know, by the end, I was a, a person who just liked to spend time with myself because I didn't know what would happen when I had that, after I had that first drink, I was out of control. I'd, I'd lost any, you know, sense of... Of myself and, and as soon as I had that first drink it would tip me over and I just couldn't control myself. I drank to pass out stage.
4: So experts say that more than four standard drinks in one session is a binge and one bottle of wine contains maybe eight or nine standard drinks but you say you were consuming three or four bottles per night. Most people would be wondering how? Was that simply because you'd built up a tolerance?
3: Yeah, I think it, and, and when I look at my drinking from a younger age, it was, I typically had this binge mentality, you know, I didn't, I I wasn't the sort of person that could just sit there and have one or two, you know, I, um by my early twenties, I was always the last man standing. I was always the person who wanted more. I was always the, you know, yeah, that's just, that's just sort of how it was. You mentioned
4: that the stress of your job and the hours and the deadlines that you faced as a television news journalist contributed to your anxiety and perhaps increased your desire to drink. Um, winding down at the end of the day was easier with a wine or two.
3: Do you think that that's a coping mechanism that lawyers would use? For sure. I think anyone, lawyers, um, bankers, anyone in a high-pressure industry, uh you go through a lot in a day, you know, sometimes you get to work and think, oh, my God, how am I actually going to achieve this today? Um, you know, lawyers, they've got billable hours, court appearances, typically, um, you know, defend dealing with humans in crisis all day. So at the end of the day, they're typically going to want to relax. And a lot of people use alcohol or, you know, even drugs as a, a false reward in the hope that that will help them
4: relax. Talitha goes on to describe how she went to an AA meeting that very day, the very evening of the day her boss had called her in for an intervention. She describes the people she met there as incredibly self-aware and impressively brave in coming to terms and opening up about their addiction.
3: I still think, and I, I used to say, I wish real society was like those in AA because people, they just genuinely want to help you. Talitha
4: also joined Hello Sunday Morning, which is a movement that aims to change people's relationship with alcohol. It doesn't prescribe blanket bans on alcohol or force people to quit drinking completely, but simply helps them reconsider how much or in what situations they are drinking, and to make healthier choices. So it was on Hello Sunday Morning that Talitha publicly outed her battle with alcohol totally by accident. She published a blog post on her Facebook page rather than click the option to remain anonymous on Hello Sunday morning. And although she was mortified at the
3: time, she says it's the best mistake she's ever made. You know, I replaced alcohol with exercise. I tipped my social life on its head. So did all of my socializing over breakfast and lunch. I just, it was a recalibration of my life as it was. Was it? Difficult, yes. It was the hardest thing I've ever done because uh, let's face it, alcohol is part of the fabric of every event in Australia and um, you're sometimes ostracised for not drinking or not taking part and that's why I'm so passionate about speaking out because I don't want people to feel like that. It should be a choice, not an expectation that we drink. I'm all for people having fun and having a drink and I wish I could <laughs> as well, but I can't and that's the reality for me. I'm not, I, I'm not about prohibition or anything like that. I just want people to enjoy themselves but also be responsible for themselves and know the role that alcohol plays in their life. With addiction, if you, you can take the substance away from the person, but the underlying problems are still there. So the anxiety is still there. But there are times when, you know, it it increases or it overcomes me and I just have to find different ways, more positive ways to deal with that.
0: Just listening to that interview, there there is so much about Talitha's story that I think so many lawyers will be able to relate to. I think Talitha Cummins is is all of us in a sense. Um, And can I just say, I think she's incredibly brave to acknowledged that she had a problem and then she's turned her life around completely. And now she's so brave to be coming out and sharing her story. And, you know, I, I admire that greatly.
4: Immensely brave. And I think that really stuck with me She told me, you know, a lot of alcoholics are very self-aware and it's almost more admirable to be able to and more brave to to come to terms with an issue or an addiction like that and to admit it to everyone who thinks you're so high-functioning and you're so successful, you might be a lawyer, you might be a journalist, it doesn't matter. To break that facade is very brave.
0: It is so easy to get caught up in the cycle of just drinking alcohol to cope, but it's really interesting to know that there are some tools out there which mean that you can move on and and change the way that you're living and change the way that you're coping with things. I recently caught up with psychologist and professor, Dr. Tim Sharp, who is the founder and self-titled Chief Happiness Officer of the Happiness Institute. He's written books, including The Happiness Handbook and 100 Ways to Happiness, A Guide for Busy People one which no doubt many lawyers might like to read. Tim has developed a number of coping strategies that were useful for Teletha, as well as many other professionals
6: who have found themselves
0: in a destructive cycle of drinking too much. So, Tim, why do you think Australians have such an obsession with alcohol?
6: Well, it's a part of pretty much everything we do. That it's very rare that you go to any sort of celebration or event that, that doesn't involve alcohol, and, and that's, that can be fun, um, but it's not always such a good thing.
0: And you're a psychologist, so do you think there's something in a lawyer's psyche or mindset or um, personality that that makes them particularly prone to perhaps drinking a little bit too
6: much? I think there is. I think there's a number of factors, but we do know that as a general rule, there is a particular type of person that will find their way into the study of the law, and that's what... Might have been called in the past sort of a type a personality, someone that 's very focused on accomplishment, usually highly intelligent, quite uh, obsessive about getting things right and not wrong, etc and then adding to that there 's a self selecting population, and so we know that the people that end up making it through to the law firms. the best of the best in the sense they're the most intelligent the most hard-working um and so even though we're starting off with a very high functioning group we get to an even more selective group of that and then we get that group who's who's being asked to work quite high demands long hours Mm. very few breaks very competitive environment often a very adversarial environment so we're talking about higher stress here and i guess in our culture alcohol is seen as a way of managing stress
0: yeah and look I understand all that, but there's still there's some people who can take it and some people who can leave it, um, and some people who do take it and once they've had one, they can't, they can't stop, they can't flick that switch. Why is that?
6: So some people will use drink as a uh, coping mechanism, but that won't necessarily be a major problem. As you said, they might be able to have one or two drinks, feel relaxed, And that's it. That's the end of the night. Other people, for a variety of reasons, won't be able to stop. There's almost certainly some sort of genetic, biological, physiological contribution, Um, some contribution by personality um, and life, life experiences. So, for example, we know that if you've grown up with an alcoholic father or a parent with a drinking problem, you're more likely to. So some combination of those three main factors is probably the answer to your question.
0: Now, look, we're all very familiar with the physical effects of a hangover, (laughs) which are none too pleasant. But, But what are the mental and emotional effects of drinking too much and drinking too much on a regular basis?
6: Anyway, if we do look at it over the long term, it can clearly have significant physical, uh, negative physical consequences, obviously on the liver, but obviously on the brain too. Um, we, we know that it can have significant effects on cognitive functioning. And in this particular population, I mean, lawyers are employed for their brains. You know, they're not employed for, their, for a six-pack or a bicep, they're employed for their brains. So if alcohol's diminishing your brain functioning, it's, it's going to make you a less good lawyer. And then there's the emotional consequences. So alcohol is actually a depressant and people don't always understand that because they feel good when they drink but it's one of those drugs that actually has a mixed effect. So after say one or two drinks uh, we do feel relaxed, we feel a bit uh, what's called disinhibited so that's why we become a bit less anxious and more maybe more gregarious or more outgoing but after those few, those first few, it starts to have more of a negative effect and it, uh, it actually has a depressing effect on the mood.
0: What Tim is saying here is interesting because alcohol, as we know, is a depressant. The more people drink and the more reliant they become on alcohol, the less of a buzz they feel and the more they start to feel depressed. Tim told me that alcohol in moderation in social settings can be part of a healthy social life. But as Talitha Cummins told Kate, when you begin to drink in isolation and find that alcohol takes you away from social interactions, it can become dangerous,
3: especially for your mental health. And that's why near the end I would isolate myself and not go anywhere because I was afraid of what would happen. You know, there were a number of flashpoints throughout my drinking career, um, being carried out of the media awards, ending up in hospital a number of times. So the focus of your work is happiness and helping people to create a happier life.
0: Do you think that alcohol can play a role in a genuinely happy life?
6: Uh, I'll just go back and clarify, actually. The focus of my work, surprisingly, is not happiness. Okay. Despite my um, nickname being Dr. Happy <laughs> and despite being the founder of the Happiness Institute, what, my focus is really on what we technically call positive psychology, and that's the psychology of thriving and flourishing or living our best life. Um, so it is about happiness and positive emotions, but it's also about meaning and purpose. It's about good quality relationships. It's about uh, optimism and, and being mindful. Um, so all of those things contribute to what I would call a good life not necessarily just happiness. Can alcohol play a part? Well, I would say there's a bit of debate about this. I, I, I would, again, um, the caveat is uh, we, we're still a little bit unsure. There's not total agreement, but I would say that yes, it can, as long as it's within what's considered safe and reasonable levels. And that's usually a lot less than what most people think. Now, this is where it comes out. So the, the recommended levels are about one or two drinks, standard drinks, um, about three or four nights a week. So you need to have at least two or three alcohol free nights and not necessarily exceed one or two standard drinks. But again, what the research suggests is that, you know, at mild levels for most of us, uh, alcohol can be relaxing. It can be calming. It can be fun. And particularly if it's part of a social interaction, which it more often than not is, then that's a great thing. Socializing is great for our quality of life. However, as I hinted at if you get beyond that, it can certainly be problematic and then it's not good for living our best life.
0: What advice would you give someone who feels that they're perhaps drinking a little bit too much and they want to change their habits?
6: Well, the first thing I'd say is good on you because you've already made that first step. The, the biggest problem with this population, and actually with other um, populations as well, is that people don't recognise it or they don't acknowledge it, they don't admit it. They're in what, uh, I guess in the past we used to call denial. Um, or what psychologists technically call um, pre-contemplation, not even ready to contemplate. So this is the person maybe who's, Drinking excessively, um, their boss at work has said, you know, we've noticed some performance problems or maybe they've been reported to HR. Their GP said they've got some bad liver results or um, but they're still denying it. You know, There's nothing wrong with it. I just like a few beers with the mates or I'd like a few glasses of Chardonnay, whatever it might be. Uh, what do you do once you're ready? Um, well, one of the simplest things is to make a plan um, and depending on how much you're drinking, it might be wise not to stop straight away. Um, different people prefer different approaches, so complete abstinence, Cold turkey can work for some people but for other people um, slow and gradual reduction um, might be uh, a bit easy. The other thing then to do is to work out what you're going to do when you feel the urge, particularly when things come up like birthdays or Christmas or um, those sorts of celebratory occasions. So one of the biggest challenges is working out a plan for dealing with that. Um, But there are some, I guess, some white lies that we see. You can just become the designated driver forever. Um, Or you can, you know, you have to go to something afterwards or you have to get up early in the morning. It shouldn't be seen to be a bad thing or a negative. It's your choice. If you don't want to drink, good on you. We should just accept that and uh, allow you to enjoy a fresh early morning. (laughs) What
4: Dr. Happy finished with there is a really great point. And one thing I think we can all do, I and I would love to see changed, is for legal professionals and people in general, stop asking people why they're not drinking. If they don't want to drink, it's not really your business and they could be an alcoholic, they could be allergic, and they could just not feel like it. If there are deeper personal reasons why they aren't drinking, they deserve your help in respecting that.
0: I completely agree. I mean, you wouldn't ask someone why they're not having a coffee or another piece of cake. So stop asking why they're not drinking. It might just be that they don't want to have a hangover the next morning or want to get up early and take the dog for a run. But really, it's none of your business.
4: Exactly. And, you know, interestingly, in researching this podcast, Claire and I have uncovered what seems to be a groundswell of this feeling among lawyers that the drinking culture in law does need to be examined It maybe it does need to change. Many people told us that firms could be more proactive in offering alcohol free events and education programs to change binge drinking cultures and my various inboxes were bombarded with comments from lawyers who called themselves high-functioning alcoholics. Yet so few of these lawyers were willing to go on record and speak about the issue publicly to Claire and me. Alcohol, unfortunately, still seems to be a taboo topic for the legal profession, but what we're hoping is to perhaps plant a seed in some lawyers' minds about seeking help if they need it, And this is something that Talitha Cummins told me really helped her to overcome her own addiction.
3: Look, there were a number of times I still remember I was at a wedding probably about 10 years ago and it was near midnight and the bride said to me, who'd had a few drinks herself, Talitha, you're so much better when you don't drink. We wish you didn't drink. Wow, And that was something that just stuck with me yes. for so long, you know. And in the days after I'd have a big night and do something shameful, that'd go around in my head. There are a couple of, you know, comments like that. And although I wasn't ready to address my problems just then, it kind of, you know, built up as a, I guess, a mounting case of evidence in my mind until I finally got to the stage where I was ready to act on it.
0: Hopefully, by starting this conversation and highlighting the journey of recovery ambassadors like Talitha, we can encourage more lawyers and law firms to examine their relationships with alcohol and develop healthier cultures in the profession. With Off The Record, we hope to shine light on dark issues within the law, and alcohol is one such black cloud hanging over many professionals. If that is the case for you, or if this podcast has raised issues, Remember that the Law Society offers free access to an independent confidential support service called Lifeline for Lawyers. Or you can contact Law Care for ongoing professional treatment support. Details are on the Law Society website.
4: That concludes the first episode of Off the Record, a podcast series to shine light on dark issues in the legal profession. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for upcoming episodes which will investigate other taboo topics in law.
0: If you like this series or have ideas for other episodes, please let us know. You can reach Kate and myself via the Law Society of New South Wales social media accounts on Twitter and Facebook or send us an email at offtherecord at lawsociety.com.au. You've
4: been listening to Off
0: The Record,
4: podcast produced by the journalists at LSJ,
0: edited and recorded
4: by So Savvy Productions
0: putting together this podcast, we had real trouble finding a guy to speak about this. Mm. And it was like, oh, we don't have a man. Then I was like, well, that actually raises an issue yeah, in yeah, itself yeah. in that why can't we find a guy to come yeah. on the record and speak about, about the women, all the women were like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's I'll talk. Yeah. The men know. Yeah. Um,
4: and all of them would say, oh, it's a really big problem. Right. Great work. You know, go ahead no. and tackle it. Oh, would you like to
0: speak? Oh, no, no, yeah. I right. no, no, no. Yeah, no, no, no.
5: I think a great start is having the conversation. As a result of working these isolatingly long hours, this is happening, um, or it contributes to it. And I think by saying, "Yep, this is this is definitely here," and we need to actually show that we have wellbeing programs. And what are you do? You know, we want the firms to come forward and say, "Well, this is what we do, and this is what we offer."
3: I just want to show people. It's okay to go and seek help for these sorts of things. And then, I've, you know, I've been nearly six years sober now. I'm back on track. My career's back on track. Everything's good and you can live a healthy and successful life.